TTS on the Grid. I am your host, Dylan Lockwood. Joining me, as always, is Aaron Hardick. Aaron, how's it going? I'm doing well, Dylan. We're here in San Antonio at Solar Storage Fest, which means we are podcasting in the same room together, which is a rarity. Yeah, it's a, it, is, it is a welcome change of pace. Uh, we're going to have the same audio levels for once. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, we're just about wrapping up the last day of the conference, uh, bringing together people from... All, from all aspects of the solar and storage supply chain, I suppose, to talk about key issues uh, surrounding these technologies. So what, Aaron, have you been fascinated to hear about the past couple of days? What I've gathered over the past few days is that utilities, project developers, co-ops are taking different approaches to integrating solar and storage into the grid. We have had the Texas perspective, we've had some perspective from California, um, but really that's what I've gathered. There hasn't been you know, one plug and play approach for solar and storage, both on the wholesale side and um, for residential. So there's just a lot of different projects that are evaluating a variety of different opportunities or strategies for implementing solar and storage yeah it, there does seem to be a message about tailoring it to your community yeah. uh, and as a result of that we've been hearing a lot about regulation even like stuff about best practices they're, they're always to take regulation into account um, what do you think are some of the, the key takeaways from all the talks we've had about like regulation talking particularly about the Texas market there is a lot of frustration on how to develop a project, a solar and storage project in the ERCOP market because you have to register storage as either a, a load entity or a generation entity. And that causes confusion around how you can actually optimize the storage for the grid. And we actually just stepped out of the room while Chris Moyer was talking to Bill Magnus, the president uh, of ERCOT, the, the balancing authority for the Texas grid. And he was just talking about some of those policies and regulations and how it affects ERCOT's ability to meet, meet peak demand and how storage can potentially play a role in doing that. Right now, it doesn't play much of a role. So I'm sure a lot of our listeners are aware that prices in the ERCOT market a few weeks back, just actually two weeks ago, um, because we're in the middle of August, the hottest month in Texas, were astronomical. They were trading at like 9,000 9, um, a kilowatt hour Jeez. on the wholesale market, which normally that's around you know, $20 or $30. Storage can help in shaving um, the price of peak demand, but right now ERCOT Right now, you can't really use storage to do that quite yet. And so that, that, that's those are some of the key issues at the hearts of utilities and regulators. Uh, what about the developers? What are they? What are you hearing from them at this conference? Well, I think developers are an interesting. You know, they they play an interesting role because they have to work with utilities, and each utility's needs are quite unique. So, for instance, I got to talk with. Um, a few CEOs at electric cooperatives, which are smaller entities. And a lot of the time for 
electric co-ops to incorporate solar and storage into the grid, they have to do it through a PPA. And that involves, you know, working with project developers. But PPA agreements right now, power purchase agreements right now, are not very favorable or they're not very, I guess, enticing to utilities because the terms on them are maybe too long um, and they're actually not providing the type of value that, uh, well, no, that's not right. It, I wouldn't say they're not providing the type of value. Um, it's hard for utilities to commit to long-term PPAs because the price of storage and the price of solar, um, you don't really know where it's going to go over the next two years, two or three years. And these PPAs are typically priced like 10 or, or typically set in like 10, 15 year time spans. So now the project developers are starting to have to think about how they can actually communicate value of solar and storage technologies to the co-ops and then figure out how they can actually start to work together to get some of these projects off the ground. So there's a lot of, not butting of heads, but a lot of details that need to be worked out to make sure that some of these partners are on the same page for uh, project developers to continue to do meaningful work. Right. I think that kind of speaks to also a little bit to kind of how averse uh, people are to taking are to taking risks uh, in this industry because uh, there's a lot of data to suggest that the value is there, but someone has to take a chance on it. You know what I mean? Exactly. Okay. Um, one of the focuses of the conference has been decarbonization, green revolution. Talk a bit about I talk about a little bit about this in my interview with Rain. But what's really stood out to you in regards to that uh, in terms of big new ideas? So Jigger Shaw did a talk with uh, Chris Moyer, and he said something that I think a lot of people underestimate, or maybe it's just right in front of us, and we don't actually grasp how important it is and that is leadership so he he says specifically you know Greta Thunberg and Jay Inslee um, they're willing they're willing to raise their head and get raise their head and get it chopped off if that's what's going to happen because it's worth doing there are people who are taking the lead on on this revolution on the green revolution on decarbonization even though you know it's controversial and there's going to be pushback but it has to to happen. He was talking about how, you know, a few years ago, just a few years ago, five, ten years ago, people were thinking he was a weirdo because he would go in front of utilities or ISOs and RTOs and talk about the importance of solar and storage, but he was so, at the time, it seemed so niche and he was just this quote-unquote weirdo that was passionate about it, but now those weirdos are the ones who know how to solve some of these problems because they've been focused on solar and storage. So it takes the leadership and expertise of these people who are very passionate about it to actually put these things out into our communities to actually make them happen. Yeah, you went from that to hosting my second favorite energy podcast. So Aaron, yesterday you and Aaron Otan went on stage and uh, did a presentation about your, your EV road trip. Storage and batteries have a, have a connection uh, to... EVs and it's all part of this green revolution conversation so uh, as always as we like to do at these events uh, let's check in on EVs how are they doing? EVs are just doing fantastically <laughs> you know I mean the there's obviously an increased adoption of EVs it's not as fast as a lot of folks would like but I think there's still you know significant 
barriers to increased adoption, whether that's charging infrastructure, um, you know, models, the availability of different models of EVs, which we talked pretty extensively about on the panel. I had read um, Bloomberg New Energy Finance put out some EV data that said in 2010 there were 21 available EV models, um, and then they they project that by 2020 there will be around 420. So I mean that's quite a significant increase over the past 10 years. Um, but the other thing that we talked about is the opportunities for vehicle to grid. So we had Carl Popham on our panel, and he was talking about how. Austin Energy through their Shines project, which was a grant through the DOE, has been exploring um, vehicle to grid opportunities. And I think the battery, the, the EV plays, is going to play a much more significant role in home solar and storage than most consumers today realize. A lot of people don't understand that an EV is just a, a moving battery. It's just a battery with wheels on it. And so there's this very interesting conversation going on around, you know, what is the purpose of installing a standalone battery in your home if you just adopt two EVs maybe a year, five years later? Now you have three batteries when maybe you didn't even need, you know, the, the home standalone battery in the first place because now you have two EVs that are moving batteries. You have to think about how all of these things, you know, play together. So... Austin Energy is, is exploring V2G, vehicle to grid, pretty extensively, and I'm excited to see what comes out of that work. I know that they're still kind of analyzing some of those projects. Yeah, that, that's a really interesting notion, the idea of an electric vehicle as a DER itself. Uh, I think that's really cool. Um, and just once again, I want to put out there, Subaru, make an electric Outback. I would buy one tomorrow. <laughs> Aaron, there's going to be a lot. There's going to be a lot more uh, solar storage fest content coming out of coming out of uh, coming out of us online in the coming in the coming weeks. But uh, just to put a nice little cap on it, what uh, what would you say was accomplished here at Solar Storage Fest? Well, Solar and Storage Fest has been an interesting event for us because you know we put on Energy Thought Summit, we put on City of the Future, but Solar and Storage Fest is really the first event that we've focused on such like two particular technologies so the crowd here is very engaged you know they're they're very much down in the weeds working on these projects and so the the discussion has been very meaningful because you can start to you know talk about some of the details of these projects that you can't normally do at larger events because there are just other things to cover so i think that bringing together um experts with such a you know particular expertise and, and depth of knowledge on the subject has opened up a lot of these people's eyes to the different perspectives that come to these projects you know we're very aware that it takes multiple stakeholders to get these types of projects done and a lot of the times and i think what was shown uh especially over the past two days was sometimes the objectives of the stakeholders can be different and that really makes it hard to take a project from vision to actual implementation. And so I think or what I hope has been accomplished over the past two days are some of these stakeholders are starting to iron out 
how they align objectives to move from just talking about doing a project to actually doing a project. Yeah, I think you're right. This event is maybe a bit less philosophical than our other events in that it's not about how do we disrupt the industry because by the very nature of solar and storage is disruptive in and of itself. So it's more in the how do we get it into the hands of the customers who want it. And that's what, and you're right, that hopefully that's what we accomplished here today. Um, so yeah, well, we've still got a lot of work to do to close this conference out. So, but uh, thank you, Aaron, for taking the time to, to drop in and talk with uh, talk with our audience about this. Thanks, Dylan. I mean, I'm really excited to see a lot of the content that comes out of the events. You know, we, we produce videos of all the panels, and a lot of the times, you know, I get caught up in you know, being involved in the event that I don't get to digest all of the information as much as I would like. So I find those to be very valuable, and I hope that, you know, some of our listeners can also you know, view that content. If they didn't get the chance to come to the event, you can still see what we talked about and kind of learn what we learned. Yes. With that, we'll have to take a quick break. When we come back, my interview with Marina Kiva. I'm here with Lorraine Akiba, CEO and founder of LHA Ventures. Lorraine, thank you for being here. How are you? Great. Thank you. Aloha. And thank you very much for having me, Dylan. Well, we love having you having you back on. It's been a couple of years since you've graced the podcast. Uh, how are you enjoying Solar Storage Fest so far? It's been great. I, you know, excellent speakers, dynamic panels, timely topics from financing to issues about how do you outreach to more residential solar customers that are not having access now to the benefits of, of solar and storage and just a lot of cutting edge issues. So um, I think it's been a great gathering yesterday. It was just a, a standing room only packed room. I'm learning a lot listening to fellow panelists and I'm looking forward to doing my panel this afternoon at two o'clock. What's something you've learned? What's something you learned here? Well, something I've learned here is that it takes a lot of coordinated effort in areas that you think where the solar resources are, are are really good, like in Texas, that there's still, it's still a very nascent uh, industry here. And uh, I'm, I'm glad that, you know, Hawaii's been a leader, but it, it, you can't take uh, for granted that there's a lot of uh, challenges and barriers and, and yet opportunities out of that to uh, create a solar market here that is appropriate to, to the Texas communities and Texas cities here in this state. So I learned a lot from hearing speakers based in Austin and San Antonio, as well as national speakers that have come to share insights on financing and the ability to leverage lower costs on solar and uh, to be able to leverage buying power for new battery technology and other forms of storage that pair well with uh, renewables. So Lorraine, uh, you have a panel coming up at about two. Uh, What is that on? That's called Regulation in the Era of Hyper-Innovation. So I'm excited to uh, join my fellow uh, panelists to talk about what regulatory uh, challenges and ability for regulators to incentivize and facilitate the adoption of new technologies with respect to um, storage and solar and to have a, a very robust dialogue with some of my fellow panelists on what decarbonization means uh, in real time and implementing that. And for those who are not at the conference and want to see that panel. It'll be on our ETS YouTube channel and on our website, etsinsights.com, so look forward to that coming up. But uh, Lorraine, uh, as you kind of hinted at there, you're 
kind of a policy and regulation expert because you were once a member of the Hawaii Public Utility Commission. So how have you taken your experience there and translated it into your new business? Yes. Well, right now, uh, Dylan, I do consulting work through my uh, firm, LHA Ventures. So I provide senior policy advisor services on, on energy policy and regulatory policy in different areas. And so I've taken the experience um, that I had from uh, being a commissioner, uh, not only for the state commission, the Hawaii Public Utilities Commission, but very actively involved in the National Association of Regulatory Utility Commission Commissioners, uh, both nationally and internationally. And I'm still doing some of that work, um, both nationally and internationally. So it is sharing uh, best practices, lessons learned, helping other regulators as they tackle these issues and um, begin to address some of the um, questions that arise when you have rapidly evolving technology in a utility space and also utilities having to deal with uh, transforming their business models in order to meet the expectations of of prosumer customers and much more enabled and empowered customers. So what's the most common issue you're having to help people address? Right now, I think it's more the technical challenges as well as the market uh, challenges with um, integrating more distributed energy resources, and which is one of the topics here at at, uh, SSF uh, 2019. Really, how do you integrate more um, distributed energy resources, being mindful that the grid has to run in a certain way and has to be keep kept in balance and knowing that there's interconnection uh, requirements and being fair to both customers that provide energy to the grid, um, but also when you get to a certain level of, of distributed energy resources that there are technical uh, requirements that need to be met and where you can perhaps call on customers to help provide what we call ancillary services to the grid to help with voltage regulation, uh, to help with some of the technical uh, requirements that come with having a highly uh, renewable uh, uh, energy grid. Are there... Are DERs prevalent in Hawaii? I know that you got kind of a different system over there. Hawaii has the highest concentration of rooftop solar in any state per capita. I know California gets a lot of, uh, of credit because of the larger population there, but one in three households in Hawaii have rooftop solar, and we have a high uh, penetration of renewable energy on our grid, partially because we have a 100% renewable portfolio standard, which means by 100%, 100% renewable energy for the electric sector by 2045 and in addition to that uh, most recently passed the uh, in the in the last session we have a 100% decarbonization requirement which requires uh, decarbonization and a, a reduction of greenhouse gas emissions in all sectors so not just the electric power sector but transportation and other sectors so as a state we've committed to decarbonizing um, and we're you know pursuing a lot of strategies to accomplish that uh, included in that, obviously, is solar and storage, which can replace a lot of our fossil fuel uh, generation plants. Yeah. Uh, in our previous episode, we talked with uh, Dr. Carolyn Cassan from NYU about decarbonization efforts that she'd seen abroad and what lessons we could learn to apply here. Uh, it sounds like you're doing something similar with the unique grid system of Hawaii. So uh, you, you talk to like regulators and policy people. Right. So how do you help them uh, craft these kinds of 
these types of long-term plans for decarbonization. Right. I think it's important to realize that, you know, an island grid system, unlike, um, you know, a continental grid system where you have like on the U.S. mainland, there's no energy imbalance market. So everything on that island grid has to balance. And there's also countervailing issues of resiliency, because as we saw from the uh, uh, lessons of Puerto Rico and, you know, a real close call again with Dorian, right, Uh, tropical storm, but now becoming a, a, a hurricane again, passing very close to Puerto Rico, there's resilience concerns because help is not a truck roll away like you are in a you know a larger landmass like the, the continental US and so I think there are considerations that have to come into play for regulators when you're um, uh, approving or when you're uh, facilitating the utility to undertake actions that provide not only reliable uh, electric power and clean power but also resilience um, and, and sustainable uh, ways of running the grid. I think a grid is a grid. Uh, so it, 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 there's a lot of similarities, even though we have a unique grid that we're just an island grid. But in fact, I think island grids, and especially Hawaii, has been like a living laboratory, sending postcards from the future, as I've always said, mm-hmm. because we're able to uh, demonstrate things, we're able to do things on a smaller scale. But what works on, on a grid in Hawaii will work on a larger grid. It's it, The grid is a grid, it's electrons. And um, we have, in fact, many of our utilities, Kauai Island Utility Cooperative and the Hawaiian Electric uh, uh, Company, have been recognized by SIPA for being leaders in solar and storage. And in fact, KIUC was the first utility in the country to establish a fully, and to implement, and now they've got four, uh, fully dispatchable uh, peaker plant with um, solar and storage, battery storage. And that's a first. And now, um, instead of having a fossil uh, peaker plants, they can use this uh, f- uh, fully reliable, fully dispatchable during the peak time to meet the, the requirements uh, of the grid. So one of the things that I imagine would be difficult in sort of translating that is the prevalence of, is, is, is the challenge that regulators would face with utilities uh and potentially populaces that don't really want to buy into those decarbonization goals or try and, you know, find ways of cheating the system. Um, so well, I think obviously it helps when you have a jurisdiction where there is some kind of clean energy goal. Right. And many states and cities are doing that. I mean, you know, even though the federal administration attempted to, uh, you know, pull us out of the Paris Climate Accord back in 2016, mm-hmm. many, when that happened, uh, many states, many cities reaffirmed that commitment and, in fact, went further and said, we're going to go 100% clean by X date. Many of them have said 2045, 2050. Um, and, you know, we can list the states, not just uh, Hawaii, mm-hmm. California, Arizona, New Mexico, uh, you know, uh, Minneapolis, Massachusetts, uh, right. you know. So I got a, I've got a point about that, though. Um, so I, I came across a piece of research recently. I came across a piece of research recently that was actually very concerning to me because it was about uh, it was about utilities in a certain region. I'm going to I'm going to be vague. So I don't so I'm not calling anybody <laughs> out here. But, uh, you know, there there were these very coal dependent utilities that uh, their regions or states passed these decarbonization goals, either full decarbonization or like a high percentage of decarbonization by X date. And the way that they were going to hold them accountable was by putting in these, putting in these milestones over like 30, like over 30 years, you would have these milestones that you had to meet every 
five years, every 10 years, or something like that. But what ended up happening was, to meet those early milestones, all they did was turn all of their coal into gas, which which is has less emissions and immediately cut all their cut their emissions down to meet those milestones. But now they've purchased all these new assets that they're not going to want to retire in 15 years when they need to hit the next milestone. So they're probably just going to end up having to like pay a fine or something, and then we cascade. We, we get even further towards a cascade event. So I, I guess my question is, how do you how do you avoid like how do you kind of avoid people uh, either acting in bad faith or doing that sort of thing? Like when you're crafting these things, do you need to work towards education to get them to buy in, or do you just kind of have to ram it down their throat? Well, I think it's a combination of of incentives and um, and penalties. So the incent here is if the utility is able to transform its business model and capture new revenue opportunities, such as in the electrification of transportation. Uh, you know, many utilities are seeing the value of getting involved with car manufacturers and rebates and providing electric vehicles. So that's politically correct load. I mean, the more EVs and the more we electrify transportation, we also reduce greenhouse gas emissions in transportation, which is actually a bigger emitter of greenhouse gas emissions than the power sector. Uh, so we need to address that as well. And industrial processes where, uh, you know, methane and other industrial processes are released that have nothing to do with power. So decarbonization is not just the electric sector, but the electric sector can be a leader in that and, and, and in, be incented because there's revenue opportunities from owning EV charging stations, from doing more with energy efficiency, demand response. And we can't forget that, that it's not just about uh building more power plants to to deal with load and in fact load in many jurisdictions has stayed stable right that's the problem when you have a utility that gets its revenue from sales of kilowatt hours of widgets of electricity we're trying to change that and in many jurisdictions performance-based regulation is being looked at by regulators rather than reward a, a utility for sales of kilowatt hours instead of decouple that so they're not their revenue requirements are not based on how much electricity they sell but more on outcomes like are they achieving decarbonization are they serving more customers are they providing better service are they providing more reliable service have they done things to be resilient given the effects of of climate change and more extreme weather so that they've protected their resources are they thinking about more microgrids and distributed energy resources to de- uh, to provide services so that if something does happen to the overall grid they can keep pockets of the grid up and running uh, and and keep power going um, so I think there's opportunities there for the uh, utilities but basically to transform their business model with the help of the regulators. And stranded assets are always a concern, and that's why integrated resource planning is important, especially for those utilities that are investor-owned utilities, maybe that are fully vertically integrated, that might be easier. But in most jurisdictions where uh, the regulator is able to do uh, a review the integrated resource planning, there is where the planning comes, and, and if the utility knows they have to meet certain milestones in other sectors, whether that's with environmental compliance, they should manage their resources and their assets accordingly. And there's new opportunities here, you know, with um, decarbonization. Like there's methane capture that can occur from um, areas like landfill gas or wastewater treatment gas or industrial processes. And utilities can, you know, find new revenue opportunities by helping some of their larger industrial customers 
uh, capture that methane and, and power, you know, power facilities or provide renewable natural gas from capturing that methane. But utilities are in the best position because they have the technology, know-how, they have the ability to use those products in, in delivering energy. So there's maybe new roles for utilities to play as well with um, the amount of, of renewables that come onto the grid. If you want to do more renewables, there's always excess generation of wind or excess generation of solar that you can't maybe match up with load. You can use some of that excess energy to create other products. Like a, now there's a real push, and this is coming from the U.S. Department of Energy, to produce hydrogen, hydrogen fuel and hydrogen fuel cell technology, which is another form of storage, which you can use that and hydrogen fuel cell technology actually can replace diesel gen sets for resilience. So like a hospital, instead of having a backup diesel gen set, could maybe have a backup hydrogen fuel cell um, that's cleaner and it's safer and can be used in the event, you know, the, the main grid goes down, can draw power from the hydrogen fuel cell. So lots of new innovation occurring because of decarbonization. Is that your, is, is that your favorite form of storage? I, I, I like the, seeing what the different types of storage are just because I'm kind of a tech nerd. Like I saw one at uh, Distributech last year where they basically the storage was basically like they stored it via like pressurized air. Yeah, there's so many different ways. Everybody thinks, oh, storage is just battery storage and lithium ion. No, that's one type of storage. I mean, storage can be as low tech as ice storage, thermal storage. I mean, that was been has been done since the early 1900s. People were super chilling water, creating ice, you know, and then using that to cool the building when you know when it was a big load and 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 you know the air conditioner or the uh, the other chilling systems of the of the uh, building need to be supplanted pump hydro p- just pumping stuff up and down a hill you yeah, know water when I've you have elevations those. and you have places that have lots of water uh, you know thermal storage lots of basic things that are storage that have nothing to do with batteries I mean it's it's just like having a diverse investment portfolio you know generation resources just as storage resources can be a diverse toolkit you not one there's not one uh, form of storage. It's what's most appropriate for that particular use and that particular uh, community and that particular service territory. Yeah, the, inter- the, the intersection between energy and chemistry is very fascinating to me. Um, but kind of going back to decarbonization regulation, um, I, I think that I think that you're right in that uh, that having having the regulators and utilities working together to create uh, these these decarbonization plans is a, is a smart idea. What other, who are the other key stakeholders that need to be brought in? I think the other key stakeholders that need to be brought in are really uh, customers. I mean, we forget the customers have a tremendous role to play. And that can be a residential customer, a small business customer, or a big, uh, you know, commercial industrial customer, especially commercial industrial customers that put solar on their facilities and put in their own storage behind the meter. You know, we talk about the virtual power plant, but there's the, there is an ability to use those customer assets. And, the, and it's a smart usage because it's not the utility using its own money. It's leveraging you know, OPM, which is a very, you know, uh, a financial strategy, right? You can leverage other people's money, other people's investments to get to a win-win situation. And that's what it would be with, especially with large CNI customers. You have some of them, the Amazons, the Walmarts of the world, you know, in even larger counties and municipalities that want to put rooftop 
uh, solar on some of their buildings and have community solar where uh, folks that wouldn't have access could subscribe into these projects or have solar in storage to provide resiliency, like resilience hubs around critical infrastructure, whether that's, you know, first responder, uh, firefighter, you know, facilities or hospitals or wastewater treatment plants or water, or water, uh, water uh, facilities. Uh, there's a whole range of things that can be done if you get customers to be your partners. And I think the allied industry partners are the technology area, the innovation that comes from technology. And maybe some of the utilities used to look at this as grid disruption and, you know, be fearful. But these are the people that are giving utilities the new tools to be able to modernize their grids, to have real-time views into distribution circuits, to call on through demand response technology, real-time open platforms, to call on even residential customers. You can aggregate all of that. And, you know, if there's a a need to balance out the system or some, you know, one major baseload unit that the utility owns goes down, you can maybe call on customers. Can you, you know, give us the energy from your batteries? Can you, or can you, you know, turn down load right now because we have to put the system back in balance. So there's a lot that can be done with technology tools. And um, that is, again, utilizing those allied industries and utilizing customer resources and partnering with customers to keep them incented because if they can get demand response credits and they can be active participants in supporting the grid, they'll stay connected to the grid and they'll see value. There'll be value for the customer and value for the utility. What are some best practices for regulators to help create achievable goals that are good for, that's good for the industry, good for customers, good for the planet? Um, I'm going to suggest a couple uh, go ahead, Ron. <laughs> go ahead, Dylan. You've hinted on a couple of these. Uh, you have to make sure to include uh, methane in your emissions goals because a lot of times they don't. You have to uh, you have to include emissions from purchased from third party people because oftentimes they don't. Yeah, you have to make sure that the that the that the customer is involved in writing writing these goals and you know with the let's go to the topic of power purchase agreements for a second because i think a lot of a lot of people feel like oh wow you know i mean uh, you know utility would uh, would always want to own and especially if they're fully vertically integrated all their generation assets and they want to own all these assets well not necessarily so because the 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 good thing about a, a power purchase agreement if it's well negotiated and it is cost effective and you know uh, a used and useful uh, power purchase agreement, uh, which are some of the same metrics that you know the utilities have been evaluated by regulators for you know under established uh, administrative uh, public utility principles. But what it does is it puts the risk of a certain uh, performance onto the developer, so that the utility is counting on the developer based on contractual obligations, of course. But they the developer takes that risk to be able to um, provide when called upon, you know that. Peaker uh, uh, that you know fully dispatchable solar storage peaker plant, and the utility doesn't have to spend its money on that. The the developer is providing that based on a purchase agreement, and they're held to the performance guarantee. So if something you know should cost a little bit more, the developer has to take that risk, and that co- that risk does not get passed on to the customer. So the PPA is set. So you know what would be 
a traditional PPA could be something that could facilitate innovation and more risk-taking, but it's risk-taking by the developer who's actually better and able to get financing for those kinds of risks and probably is better at managing those kinds of risks and the utility can still stay in its comfort zone and still provide you know reliable, resilient service to, to its customers. So there are many ways that we can accomplish that um, and risk allocation because I, I think that's a, it's a hard concept for some utilities to still get around is risk. It's not. It's a very risk adverse business. Uh, people want to mm-hmm. minimize the amount of risk. So if you can have others bear that risk and still have certainty in de- delivering a good, uh, uh, clean energy, mm-hmm. why not? That's something that the Jigger Shah from our respected rival, the Energy Gang, uh, said yesterday was that like the solar developers, all they like, all they want is just this the same contract and they can and they when they have the data to show that they can provide it um so i i think that i think that it it, it can be that simple that all you have to do is just like hold your nose if you have to and just do it and then and then you'll know if it works or not well i think that the proof is in is just in the data i think and that's yeah. what jigashaw was telling you about is that solar and storage wind and wind is even cheaper i mean you're in texas you know that from from the aircraft market but uh, renewables clean energy plus storage are cheaper than fossil fuel. Like a good example of a utility that gets and it's actually trying to transform its business model is NG or Angie, uh, which is a multinational um, utility that uh, is headquartered actually in France. Their uh, CEO is a female CEO, Isabel Cocher, a very progressive visionary leader. And they have a but, big office in my hometown of Spokane. Aha! Well, Angie started, after the Paris Climate Accord, Angie started divesting of of natural gas. Uh, they're natural gas plants and they've pretty much fully diversified of that and they've invested in in uh, clean energy renewable energy and they've invested in allied industry businesses whether that's demand response businesses energy efficiency service companies storage companies they've begun to diversify their portfolio of corporate assets because they see the the circular economy of the future the clean energy economy of the future and they want to position themselves in those growth sectors because it makes fiscal sense and because their customers are demanding that. Just bringing it back to best practices real quick, Lorraine, what are some of your best practices for for creating good decarbonization regulation? The main thing I always remind regulators is um, be, be cognizant of unintended consequences, that you think you're taking an action and then you don't realize there's an unintended consequence, that you didn't intend for that to really occur or you weren't aware of that that effect. And then it's being flexible enough to be responsive if uh, you know there needs to be a course correction, and that's for utilities or regulators. So regulators, uh, I think, are... Um, are not known for being flexible and are not known for, you know, moving fast. And th- th- there's a reason for that. The process needs to have due process. We need to be able to allow stakeholders and, and interveners to be able to weigh in on, on very important issues. But if we can be flexible and we can also facilitate collaboration and communication before we go into formal dockets. I think that's in the regulatory process and that we do that a lot in Hawaii. We have work technical working groups and collaborative working groups that we encourage people to discuss this as stakeholders before you come to the commission or we try to facilitate or retain facilitators sometimes to, to help with that discussion so people can hash out the issues 
uh, have good, robust dialogue, come to agreement and consensus where they can. And if they can't, then there'll be, you know, various parties' positions on things that they couldn't agree to. But it really moves the process forward. And it also helps people to work together. Uh, and maybe because we come from an island community in Hawaii and, and we, you know, we all have to roll together in that canoe. Uh, but it, it really does help to have a collaborative and communicative process versus just an adversarial process where people talk to each other f- the first time when they're in a formal docket. I think that's, I think that's, I think those are all very pertinent. Uh, so uh, as we're hitting time here, any final thoughts on the future of solar and storage? I think the future is very bright for solar and storage. Uh, you know, it's in the money. Obviously, prices continue to decline. The usage of solar and storage uh, continues to increase in various jurisdictions and providing ancillary services to support the grid. So it's not just about energy. It's about new ways to use solar and storage to uh, do things that the, the technology enables now that weren't even possible five years ago. So I continue to see a robust growth in the area, and I hope that um, more uh, conferences like this can occur so more people can get educated. Well, Lorraine, thank you very much for sitting down with me today, and uh, good luck on your talk later. Thank you. To see all of the talks at Solar Storage Fest, if you missed it, they'll be uploaded on our ETS YouTube channel uh, in the coming months. For all of our other research and media, you can head to etsinsights.com. You can find us on social media at D.Y. Lockwood, at Aaron Hardick, at Zprime underscore research, and you can check out all of the everything that went down at Solar Storage Fest by searching the hashtag SSF19. And Aaron and Aaron are going to be doing the part two of their road trip. Check out the hashtag EVAaronsTX. My name is Dylan, and we'll see you all next time. Mm-hmm.